This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode features an interview with Jay Baer, president and founder of Convince and Convert. In this interview, Jay talks all about how to generate word of mouth and how to respond to customer feedback. Here were some of the top highlights from this episode. Yeah, I mean, everything you put your name on is a business card at some level, right? So Scott Stratton, who's a terrific marketer and author and speaker, has this has this philosophy of the brand pulse that you always start at sort of neutral and, and everything you, you create that adds to your reputation sort of takes that heartbeat a little faster and everything you create, whether it's an email, a blog post, a video, podcast episode, a book, a speech, everything that you create that, that falls short of expectations kind of lowers that heartbeat. And I think it's a really nice way of thinking about it. Word of mouth is and has always been uh, the best way to grow any business um, was the original form of marketing back when it was only cavemen and one caveman's like, bro, this other guy's got the best spearheads or whatever. That was the only marketing we had. And then somebody, I don't know, painted something on a cave and invented outdoor advertising or whatever. But for a long time, <laughs> word of mouth was the only game in town. And it is still, and this has been proven a million times, not just in our research, but by a lot of different researchers, that word of mouth is still the, has the greatest impact on, on purchase intent of anything. Yet, nobody has an actual strategy for it. The, the data that John Jantz found is fewer than 1% of businesses have an actual word of mouth or referral strategy. Customer feedback is a gift, no question about it. One of the most interesting things in the era that we live in now is that so often customer service and customer interactions are a spectator sport now, right? I mean, there's people looking on, whether it's a, a tweet or a review or what have you. That's a lot different than how business used to be done. And, and it changes the economic consequences of support and customer success quite a bit. It's still massively underfunded in most companies in my estimation. But one of the things that that I think is is easy to lose sight of, and my friend Tom Webster says this best, um, the plural of anecdote is not data. Yeah. And it's easy to, in, in, in companies of any size, right? Even big enterprise companies, it's easy to let stories guide your decisions. We had this customer who said this and he was really, really mad, right? And that becomes truth. That becomes gospel. And you start to change the customer experience based on that one story because stories are sticky, as we know. Stories are sticky in a way that data isn't, but when you're making customer experience decisions, you really want to use data because one story can take on a, really a life of its own inside the walls of the organization uh, and kind of lead you astray. The general philosophy is that you answer every customer in every channel every time. You do it as quickly as possible and, and you do it with empathy but you do not get into um, a back and forth tit for tat because that is counterproductive and, and, and never works. And with that, let's get to it. Enjoy this interview with Jay Baer, founder and president of Convince and Convert. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And on the other line, 
Lauren Vaccarello, what's going on? Not too much. How are you? How is your uh, How is your day not in Palo Alto? It's good. Actually, I'm going there later. But uh, for now, I'm in the sunny East Bay, and we have special guest, very special guest, keynote speaker and marketing extraordinaire, and Arizona Wildcat, which I did not know. Jay Bear, what's going on? Ian, fantastic to be here. I hope you are enjoying uh, your sunny climate. Laura, great to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. We've been following your stuff for a long time, and we wanted to get into a little bit of uh, how Jay became Jay, but also talk through a bunch of the stuff that you've written recently uh, in books and you know your podcast and what you've been blogging about recently. We're going to talk talk triggers, which I love. I love that idea. We're going to talk a little bit of hug your haters about content marketing, smart marketing, about help, not hype, and many other things. But first, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Sort of uh, slowly and then all at once. Uh, And I I was originally a journalism major. So I went to school in Tucson to be a journalism major. And I wasn't there too long before I switched to poli-sci and I graduated university in politics. So I I was a political campaign manager and ran political campaigns in Arizona for Congress and governor and and, uh, Senate and did some work for uh, Senator John McCain for a number of years, uh, including when he ran for president the first time unsuccessfully. And I realized relatively quickly that as much as I liked politics, not a super good family gig. Like it's tough, <laughs> tough, tough, like running political campaigns because you're working like 22 hours a day. It's insanity. And I had a young child at the time and I was like, yeah, this is maybe not going to work out. So I, I figured like if I could get somebody elected, I could, I could market soup or a home builder or whatever, the the dynamics are pretty much the same. And so I I shifted over to what we would now consider traditional marketing. And I worked for waste management for a few years, the environmental services company. So um, Ian and and, and Lauren, I could tell you a lot about how a landfill is made. Yeah. I could tell you a lot about how uh, portable toilets are, are, uh, are rotated. Like there's a lot of things that we could get into here on the show. So I spent some time in the environmental services industry and then uh, left there and worked for the government as a spokesperson for about 20 minutes and realized that uh, government culture was not really my, my thing. I'm pretty entrepreneurial and that wasn't really that. And about that time, some friends of mine from school had started the very first internet company in Arizona. And, and we were having some beers and they said, you know, this internet company is getting a little bigger and we don't know anything about marketing. And I said, well, that's fine because when you say the word internet, I don't really know what that word means <laughs> yeah. because this is 93, 1993. This is pre Yahoo. This is 10 years before Google or something like that. This was pre browser. This is uh, still text-based open internet. And, and what we considered to be the quote unquote internet was America online, CompuServe, Prodigy, walled gardens and the, the real internet was just coming out. And I said, here's the thing, I'll do anything to, to not, you know, give another press release working for the government. And so I quit the next day and true story started as the vice president of marketing for an internet company, having never been on the internet, which is a very interesting first day of work. And, and uh, that was in 1993. And here we are. And I've only made two good decisions in my whole career. Uh, One was to convince my wife to marry me, which is the hardest I've ever worked at anything uh, before or since. And two, getting involved in the internet before there really was an internet and having the good sense to at least stay tangentially involved. 
So the the first convince and convert was actually convincing and converting uh, your girlfriend to be your fiance. That's right. I didn't have the domain uh, name, but, but the playbook was the same. That's right. <laughs> and then so you started, you know, flash forward to convince and convert. I, you know, what made you start this company? And, uh, you know, as all things kind of do, I love that uh, that getting the domain name is always the hard part. Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a weird history with domain names. When I, when I started in that first company, which is called Internet Direct in 93, it was so long ago, guys, that domain names were free. So wow. you could get whatever domain name you wanted and just be like, I like to have that now because nobody wanted a website. Like, what would you do with it? What, what's a website? What would you do with that? Why would you, why would, why would you want customers to be able to get a hold of you? Because you're closed at night. It was, you know, that this is where we were. And my partners and I in that first business registered a bunch of domain names. True fact, we sold the domain name Budweiser.com. Oh my gosh. To Anheuser-Busch for 50 cases of beer. (laughs) And we genuinely thought that we got like a super good deal. Um, I was the senior partner at the ripe age of 23. Uh, and when you're 23 and somebody gives you beer a lot. cases of beer, yeah, that's a lot of beer. Um, that was a lot of beer. So we were pretty stoked about that. When they talk about beer money as like, hey, your, your, your side hustle makes you your beer money, you took that literally from the very beginning. Uh, I went on vacation after that triumphantly. I was so, so you know, excited about it. That's the best part. It actually cost you money because you went, you had to go on vacation. <laughs> it did. Although vacations were not, not that robust in those days. I think I went to like Jack in the Box for a week. My, my partners registered a couple of domains without me because I wasn't there. So I just forgot to put my name on that paperwork. One of those, my partner subsequently sold, it was beer.com. And oh he sold goodness. that to Molson Brewing for $5.1 million. Oh. Uh, and he hasn't really worked an honest day since. And, and here I am on, on the show. So, you know, you, you never know how things are going to work out, which is why my relationship with domains is a little bit, a little bit complicated. But when I started Convince to Convert in 2010, I, or 2008, I should say, 2008, uh, I had had a previous firm uh, in Arizona that did digital strategy that I had sold to an advertising agency. And when my contract was up with them, uh, I thought I was going to not do this again. I thought I was going to go teach. And so I had a bunch of offers from universities to teach digital marketing. And I decided to to not do that, that I thought I would be too quiet. And, and so I, I started this firm and uh, 11 years later, here we are. And we're working with some of the most interesting brands in the world. It's been great. Yeah. I mean, talk quickly about just some of the brands that you're working with, because I want our listeners to kind of know the the breadth of the type of things that you're working on. Because what I have found from you know listening to you and following along on the journey is that you work with a ton of different types of companies, which I think is really interesting, but also potentially challenging. Yeah, it's both. So, so the good news is we don't pigeonhole ourselves into a category. Uh, the bad news is we don't have any economy of scale intellectually because of that. So, so we're, like we're working with right now, Oracle, Cisco, two universities, uh, Chiquita Banana, a large home builder, a hospital, you know, we've done work for the United Nations, Hilton, Grand Ole Opry, Bentley as a client. We, we do a lot of work for a lot of great brands and we're really, really fortunate to do it. Uh, I think one of the reasons we've been successful is that we're super easy to work with and we only do strategy, right? We stick to our knitting. We're not an agency. We're a consulting firm. We're like McKinsey, but fun. So, so we only do 
digital strategy, social strategy, content strategy, and customer experience strategy. Like that's, that's the list, right? So if you want us to like make your Facebook ads, we don't do that, right? We'll tell you what you should do and we'll give you a recipe, but we don't cook any meals. So, and we're going to get into content marketing a little bit later because we could quite literally do an entire episode on just content marketing. But one of the things that I found pretty interesting about you is how well you've kept your personal brand as a method to get the word out about what you're doing, to show yourself as a thought leader. And a lot of that has been writing. And I think a lot of people out there that are kind of on those like brand journeys. So I would say probably not, you know, at at a big company necessarily, or maybe they're, you know, a really talented marketer, but, you know, trying to kind of think about like, hey, I want to get my brand out there or build a brand or those sort of things that you kind of hear a lot. Um, For you, I think you've done that really well, but by kind of doing the work. And I think that that's what has separated you from a lot of other folks is that you actually have done all the work to write the books, to do the research, to be abreast of what's going on in the market. How do you have time to do all of this stuff? You put out really high quality work, you know, well running, uh, running your shop. So what's the secret to, to Jay's success? Well, thank you. Those are kind words. Uh, you know, I appreciate it. It is a ton of work, right? And, and you're exactly right. Thank you for picking up on it. I mean, it's one of the things that I really, I believe in and, and pride myself on, which is that success in this business is, is based on perspiration, not inspiration. Yeah. It, it, it's, you, you got to just show up, right? And there, there aren't a lot of circumstances in sort of the quote unquote thought leader business, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but yeah, no, it is. There's not a lot of circumstances where all of a sudden you level up six rungs overnight, right? It just doesn't really, you just don't catch lightning in a bottle very often. Or by putting out crap. Like that's the other thing. Like people are like, oh, I wrote an article a day for 365 days and here's what I learned. It's like, yeah, good job. That's, that's great that you did the work, but that's not, that's not putting in thoughtful, deep work. You know, actually, we just talked to John Miller from Engageo about this, about how much work he personally puts into, you know, their guide. Like he's the CEO of the company and like he's made his business around how much work goes into this, like a lot, a lot of deep work, not like, you know, I'm going to write an article every day just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, even Corinne from from IBM Blue Wolf and how much work that they that she put into the the guide for Salesforce and it's yes, data Salesforce yeah data Salesforce report and it's it's not about let's just pump out a ton of a ton of content for the sake of pumping out a ton of content because you you think that's what you need it really is focusing on what's the quality what's the what's the value you're providing and that's when. <laughs> the quote unquote thought leadership starts to starts to come and appear. And that's when you actually start to use this content to drive real business outcomes. Yeah. I mean, everything you put your name on is a business card at some level, right? So Scott Stratton, who's a terrific marketer and author and speaker has this, has this philosophy of the brand pulse that you always start at sort of neutral and, and everything you, you create that adds to your reputation sort of takes that heartbeat a little faster. And everything you create, whether it's an email, a blog post, a video, podcast episode, a book, a speech, everything that you create that, that falls short of expectations kind of lowers that heartbeat. And I think it's a really nice way of thinking about it. So, so what I try to do is every time I make something in whatever format it is, that, that hopefully people learn from it and they feel like, hey, that was better than I expected it to be. It's probably not always true, but that's where I set out for it. And if you do that 
every day, right? For what's now 11 years, at least in this format, you know, it adds up over time. It really does. And, and, you know, you talked about research. It's one of the things I'm, I'm a big believer in. I think it's more important than ever. There's a lot of folks out there who will just say, hey, do this because I say so. And I certainly do some of that as well. I have a lot of experience in this, but, but wherever possible, both myself and our team, we do a lot of first, second party research, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. the books that I write, you know, I spent in the last book, we probably spent 40 grand out of pocket just on research. Wow. You know, we do four big quarterly reports that convince and convert. We've got a new one coming out here pretty soon. Last year, we did one on um, social media for America's top 50 hospitals. We did uh, a report on best digital programs for America's top 50 universities. And that's all a combination of actual first party research and second party analysis. And, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not just a puff piece, right? It's real research. And um, I think people are surprised that a firm as small as ours um, you know, we're intentionally boutique that, that a firm our size puts out stuff of that caliber. And and I want to get into some of the writing stuff because I thought Talk Triggers was really, really interesting. You know, if for our listeners, you can get it. Kindle book is like $13.99. It's, it's, it's a great read. What was kind of the impetus for this? And and I guess before that even, why did you put llamas or what, what are they? Alpacas? Uh, what's on the, what's on the cover? Okay. It is alpacas. I'll tell you the story. So all the books that I write, I've, I've done six now, and they all get written for the same reason. It's, I'm super fortunate as an author and as a speaker that, that I still run a, a, you know, a very viable consulting firm because I'm, I'm still involved with clients all the time. I, I don't do as much day-to-day client execution work as I used to because I'm on the road so much. But, but you know, just before we jumped on the show, I was reviewing a, a deliverable that's going to a client tomorrow and saying, yeah, this is good, but you know, we want to reposition this, rephrase this. I'm still involved in everything. And it's a real luxury because I, I have access to what clients who are, again, some of the most iconic brands in the world, what bothers them and what they're confused by. And so absolutely. what I try and do, go ahead. No, no, I was, sorry. I, I was just saying, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like one of the, the one of the key takeaways, you know, and, and sometimes we talk about it on the show that like CEOs should spend 30% of their time with customers because they need to be in the trenches with customers so that they don't lose sight of like, what it is that we're doing, what is the customer outcomes that we're solving. And it's the same way with writers. It's the same way with anything. You need to spend time wherever it is that is going to have the impact. And you're not going to learn things about the world if you're not out in it. I mean, my philosophy is a business book doesn't need to exist unless it answers some questions that people actually have. And so, uh, you know, people have asked me in the past, like, well, how often do you write books? And the answer is always the same. When I feel like there's a question I need to answer for people. And and so what I do is I listen closely to the questions that our actual clients have. And when I see a pattern emerge, that's one of the things I'm actually good at. Most things I'm really not that good at, but one thing I am good at is, is recognizing patterns. And, And so when I see a pattern emerging, I think, huh, if, if our clients are some of the most interesting and, and largest brands in the world don't know the answer to this, a lot of people don't know the answer to this. And so I'll start to, to kind of probe that, that idea. And then I do it a little differently, guys. So what I do is I, I write a speech first, right? So I, I create a, a, a keynote presentation, 60 minutes or so. Uh, and then I take that on the road and I'll do it a few times and practice it and polish it and tweak it and, and tell some stories and, and kind of try it on like a new outfit. And if it seems to really resonate with audiences and I feel like I like to tell those stories and I feel like, yeah, I, I, I dig this topic, 
then I turn it into a book, right? Mm -hmm. So I road test it as a speech first and the speech becomes a book. And then when the book is done, then it's a different speech, obviously, but, but that's the sequence. So questions from clients first, pattern recognition second, speech third, book fourth. And I do it the same way every time. It's like a stand-up comic. You know, you're testing it in the comedy clubs, getting it out there, getting feedback. People are coming up to you afterwards and saying like, hey, I really love that, you know, but what about this question? No, it's, you know, I go to a lot of stand-up shows for that reason. Like I really I really love that craft and, and I see a lot of what I do in how they go about material. So yeah, I, I take a lot from them. And so it's a great process and methodology to doing this. Yeah, it really, it really is brilliant. I think a lot of people kind of like, work work the other way of, hey, I'm going to outline 25 chapters of, of a book uh, and then get two chapters in and like, I am never completing this. So the reason I wrote this one, uh, to get back to your question, Talk Triggers, yeah. subtitle is The Complete Guide to Creating Customers with Word of Mouth. And I wrote it with my good friend, Daniel Lemon, who used to be the head of strategy for Convince and Convert, my consulting firm, and, and now is running a, um, a really interesting mobile, mobile app company. So he and I have been working on customer experience consulting for our clients for a long time. And the question we kept hearing was, you know, our clients were saying like, we, we feel like we've got a decent handle now on like the mechanics of social and the mechanics of content and all that, but we're not really sure like what we should be saying and what do we do about influencers? And, you know, we started to kind of peel away the layers. What, what it came down to is that nobody had an actual game plan for word of mouth which is quite a puzzle considering that word of mouth is and has always been uh, the best way to grow any business um, was the original form of marketing back when it was only cavemen and one caveman was like, bro, this other guy's got the best spearheads or whatever. That was the only marketing we had. And then somebody, I don't know, painted something on a cave and invented outdoor advertising or whatever. But for a long time, <laughs> word of mouth was the only game in town. And it is still, and this has been proven a million times, not just in our research, but by a lot of different researchers, that word of mouth is still the, has the greatest impact on, on purchase intent of anything. Yet, nobody has an actual strategy for it. The, the data that John Jantz found is fewer than 1% of businesses have an actual word of mouth or referral strategy. Fewer than 1%. You know, even though it's, you know, nobody's going to argue, hey, Jay, word of mouth's not important. Like nobody's going to say that. Uh, yet we just take it for granted. We just figure like, yeah, well, you know, look, if we just run a good company, people will talk about us, but that's not how people behave. So what we set out to do was, was to cre create a book and a system and a methodology, same methodology we use in the consulting firm, that says, well, what if, what if you tried to do word of mouth on purpose instead of what everybody's doing today, which is word of mouth on accident? You know, in the research, you found that word of mouth is directly responsible for 19% of all purchases, but it influences as much as 90%. I think that that's a really interesting insight. And when you talk about word of mouth, I mean, I think what we now, especially as, you know, when you're looking at B2B, customer success stories, testimonials, all these things. That is like just word of mouth via, hey, it's somebody, it's someone's not telling you this, you're finding it, but there's still some level of like, well, someone else is saying that this is a good product and we're trying to, you know, essentially scale that idea of word of mouth. How much of this is one person directly telling another person, whether it's, you know, them going to them, asking phone, email, whatever it is, versus things that are like online or testimonials or things sure, like that. Sure, G2 Crowd, Trust Radius, whatever. The data suggests it's about 50-50. Um, this is from Engagement Labs, uh, not my research, but theirs, suggests that today about 48% of all word of mouth is online. So social reviews, 
discussion boards and forums, et cetera. Uh, 52% is, is what we consider to be offline. So that would be face-to-face email, which again is online, but you know what I mean? Those kind of more quote unquote traditional word of mouth conveyance mechanisms. So it's about 50-50. As you might suspect, even though the volume is, is approximately equal, the persuasiveness of offline, so phone, email, face-to-face is slightly higher because that's typically a conversation that has follow-up questions, right? So if I say, hey, this is a great podcast, I've been listening to it, somebody might say, well, yeah, how come, right? And then we can actually have two or three questions where if I just post it on Twitter, love the podcast, that certainly helps, but it's not quite as persuasive because there's not additional information uh, sort of hanging off that Christmas tree as an ornament. So both are important. The, the sort of offline version is is slightly more persuasive. Lauren, I, I'm curious what were the things that you've done throughout your career that have tried to accelerate word of mouth? That's a a great question. Honestly, a lot of where we first started thinking about how do we accelerate word of mouth were a couple of things. One was what can you do to use social and how do we empower and enable customers and really incentivize customers to sort of talk about you and post about you on social. And this was, you know, earlier days of social. I think we, we still try to do it. And I could think about, and Jay, I love your your feedback on this. And we would think about, you know, when we, I was running marketing at Avril and we were doing our APAC launch and we wanted to get people to talk about us. And we wanted to, gosh, I'm going to hate saying this phrase, empower our influencers. So we did everything from, can we set up a contest and get people to, it was funny, tweet about us if we were American, but there it was a lot of how do you post on Instagram and really get customers to kind of talk about you. And then on the the flip side, when I think about some of the things we did at at Box was less pushing on the, the social and almost the commercial side of word of mouth and really spending time building these deep relationships with our our best customers and focusing on who are our best customers who are not just best because, you know, they spend the most money, but who are the most excited about us? Who are the most engaged and how do we enable them and really encourage them to talk about us as much as possible? The, the evangelists. Absolutely. It's turning and it was turning these customers into evangelists. And there's this really common misconception at a lot of B2B companies that, when you say your best customers, it's who has the best, the fanciest title of the biggest company. And that's not necessarily it. It is the, the customers, the users who are in your product all day, every day, and are so excited by it and want to tell everyone and want to train other customers and see all the potentials and possibilities and really digging in and focusing on identifying these people, empowering these people and what can we do as a, a company to not just take from them, but give back to them? And what are the opportunities there? Yeah, Jay, have you, what are some best practices that you've seen of ways that companies are accelerating that word of mouth? Well, I think that what, what we need is, in the parlance of the book, a talk trigger. And a talk trigger is the antidote to the problem that we have in business today in that we believe that competency creates conversation. That if we just run a good business, that people will talk about that, but but we don't. Uh, I don't know everybody listening. I'm, I'm sure I know some of your listeners, but but I know this to be true. Nobody has ever said, hey, let me tell you 
about this perfectly adequate experience I just had. Yeah, totally. Right? That's not a story worth telling, nor is it a story worth listening to. So if you want to turn your customers into advocates, and you do, if you want to turn your customers into your greatest sales and marketing force, and you do, you got to give them a story to tell. And you need to do that on purpose. So, so the way we lay it out in the book, and the way we do it in the consulting firm, is we, we go through the customer experience, and we create one element of that customer experience that is designed purposely to create Con conversations, right? Um, you think about a, a firm like Uber Conference, right? Uber Conference free conference calling service. Some people I'm sure have used them. Yeah, I've used them many times. Yeah, right. There's, so there's dozens of companies that do the exact same thing. Free conference calling on the internet is not an unusual product at this point. Uh, everybody does it. They are all fundamentally the same. Very little differentiation at the product level or the feature level. Uber Conference though has a talk trigger. Their talk trigger is their on hold music is super duper hilarious. It was written so by their funny. CEO, Alex Cornell. It's a really, really funny song. And if you look on Twitter or G2 Crowd or Trust Radius or anywhere that people talk about this kind of thing, Spiceworks, whatever, you'll see post after post after post after post of people saying, man, I cannot believe how hilarious that on hold music was. I was bummed when somebody joined the call. Now, you literally can't buy that kind of publicity, right? You, you cannot purchase that kind of that kind of magic that turns your customers into your best marketers. But you absolutely positively can, and in my opinion, should go through a strategic process to figure out what your talk trigger is. What, what element of your customer experience can you design so that people notice it and talk about it? So and everybody can do it. And yep. especially in B2B, because in B2B, people seem to have taken a vow of boredom, like they have to be a boring company. Uh, and that's not true. You can do something interesting that people notice. It's okay. I love that. And it's such a simple way. And I will tell you how many compliments I've gotten because I choose the uh, Rick Astley never going to give you up as as the hold music for my uh, Uber conference call. There you and, go. Uh, I had so many people say over the years, like, I can't believe I got Rick rolled on a, uh, on a conference call. <laughs> a like, conference call. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you asked about the book, right? So, so our new book, Talk Triggers, uh, does, it's hot pink, which is a little unusual. And it does have alpacas on the cover, which is not typical for a business book. And so Daniel and my co-author and I, were working on the book. And, and in the first sort of draft, we had a regular perfunctory, boring, lame-ass business book cover. And we were getting ready to publish it with our, our friends at Penguin. And he and I had like a conference call. And we're like, man, look, this is a book about word of mouth. Like maybe we should do something that is a little different. Maybe we should create a book that's designed to create conversations because, you know, that's what the book is about. And so we uh, said, all right, let's try that. And Daniel found that image of the two alpacas sort of whispering to one another. And he mocked up the cover. It's 95% what he created in first draft is what we went with and sent it to me. And I'm like, I think it's awesome, but there's no way Penguin's going to go for this because it's too weird. He's like, well, maybe they will. I'm like, they won't. He's like, well, maybe. I'm like, no way. He's like, well, just send it to him. And so I shipped it over to our publisher. And I think some people are on vacation, which was the real saving grace there. And, <laughs> and, and they're like, yeah, we love it. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And, and so there mm -hmm. you have it. And, and it's so crazy that it turns out that alpacas or like the animal of the moment, right? Like there's all this stuff now. There's all these. So hot right now. So hot, man. Like throw pillows and t-shirts and furniture. I was in New York the other day. Some like hipster furniture store, like Lower East Side, a whole alpaca collection. I'm like, what? 
And, and it's so crazy. And a lot of people think that the, that the animal on the cover of the book is a llama. Turns out, I didn't know this, llamas have better name ID than alpacas. And everybody thinks it's a llama. And so Daniel and I actually commissioned a very awesome, very detailed infographic on the differences between llamas and alpacas. Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> and you can find that at talktriggers.com. Yes, available, available for free at talktriggers.com if you're interested, because people kept asking us uh, about the llamas. And I, I'm going to say, Jay, that you're, you putting the, the alpacas on the cover of the, the book actually started the whole alpaca trend. I don't know that that's true uh, from a time perspective, but I'll go ahead and claim it. I'll, I'll, yes, I'll, I'll go for that. Absolutely. I, I, you know what? It's close enough. It's sure. close enough. I'm going to sure. say, I'm going to say yes. And you Perfect. have helped accelerate and you really driven this entire alpaca industry. I, 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 I should be getting a commission from the alpaca farmers or something. Uh, Absolutely. We have another talk trigger in the book in addition to the alpacas. And it's that right on the back of the book, it says uh, satisfaction guaranteed if you buy this book and you don't love it, send a note to the authors and they will buy you any other book of your choosing. And that's true. We will. So we've sold thousands and thousands and thousands of books, of course, and, and we've only had two people take us up on it so far. Uh, a guy sends us a note, says, hey, I read the book. Uh, I didn't like it. And I would like this book. And it was some like out of print book on like programming. It was like $200. Which I thought it was a little cheeky, but I'm like, whatever. We said we'd do it. So we send this guy a book, 200 bucks. And, and then I, I sent him a note and said, hey, just by the way, like, what didn't you like? Guy says, too many case studies. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, that's the problem I have with business books. Too much evidence in this book. So <laughs> we, we do live in an evidence-free society now. Yes, so. we are post-evidence. I think that's it. So, so <laughs> thank you, Lauren, for picking up on that. So then two weeks later, we get another guy. I didn't like the book. Uh, I, I want some, he wanted a Mark Schaefer's book, which is fine because I like Mark a lot. I like his book and I'm like, that's fine. So I sent him a note. How come you didn't like the book? Guy says, not enough case studies. So I, <laughs> I don't know what to do now. That's hilarious. Yeah. You know you what it is? It's um, outliers. Outliers, exactly. That's it. Outliers. It's too much, too little. You can't make everyone happy. Everyone else loved the book, clearly. That's right. Uh, so we are going to thank those people for their opinion and perspective right. and, res and respectively put it aside. Well, since, since I wrote a whole book called Hug Your Haters before this one, I knew how to handle it. So I felt pretty, I felt pretty well uh, informed and, and, uh, and armed to deal with it, but I thought it was pretty hilarious. Honestly, that, that made me think a little bit about the, the Hug Your Haters, and I'm going to completely misquote and misrepresent this, Ben, you will hopefully correct me, is it's not just looking at the, you know, the, individual, the individual's feedback, but actually applying real data to it and it's not about one person's feedback. It is what does the overall sort of data say when you're thinking about customer feedback and customer experience. Yeah, customer feedback is a gift. It, customer feedback is a gift, no question about it. One of the most interesting things in the era that we live in now is that so often customer service and customer interactions are a spectator sport now, right? I mean, there's people looking on, whether it's a, a tweet or a review or what have you. That's a lot different than how business used to be done. And, and it changes the economic consequences of support and customer success quite a bit. It's still massively underfunded in most companies in my estimation. But one of the things that, that I think is, is easy to lose sight of, and my friend Tom Webster says this best, um, the plural of anecdote is not data. Yeah. And it's easy to, in, in, in companies of any size, right? Even big enterprise companies, it's easy to let stories guide your decisions. 
we had this customer who said this and he was really, really mad, right? And that becomes truth. That becomes gospel. And you start to change the customer experience based on that one story because stories are sticky, as we know. Stories are sticky in a way that data isn't. But when you're making customer experience decisions, you really want to use data because one story can take on a, really a life of its own inside the walls of the organization uh, and kind of lead you astray. I mean, just in my own circumstance, if I say, hey, one person, the first guy who ever wanted his money back said there's too many case studies and I was sitting down to write another book, I might say, you know what, this time I need fewer case studies just because I had that one story, right? And, and it's just, a, it's a dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous game to play. Well, you I think are completely, completely, completely right with that. And I, as marketers, in so many ways, we hear this bit of customer feedback and it's easy to, and I've seen founders do this and marketers and product leaders do the same thing of, I've gotten this piece of feedback and this one person or two customers said this to me, so it must be true. And now how do I adjust and change? Because, you know, I, I believe in my customer and providing value. But to your point, sometimes you have to take a step back and say, is this, is this the outlier or is this the actual overall customer feedback and customer sentiment? And as we become more and more focused on the customer and more and more focused on customer feedback, it's so important to be able to parse the two. Well, and that's, that's where you have to put your sleuth hat on, you know, your Sherlock hat. And, and, you know, like if you were to have a conversation with the guy who said that and say, well, why'd you do that? Or like, well, why are there too many? It's like, well, you know, it, it was just too long. Well, it's like, okay, well, is it because it's too long or because there are too many case studies? Like, yeah, like, why was it too long? And it's like, well, because, you know, when I was on vacation, I was reading the book and, you know, my, my partner kept nagging me that I was reading too much. Like, is it because there are too many case studies or because, like, you shouldn't have been reading on vacation or something like that? Like, you could dig into the reason why that they're actually saying that there are too many case studies or not enough case studies or, or whatever it is. And, and kind of get the exact reasoning down to the nuts and bolts of like, what is the reason why this thing is happening and get to the root cause of it. But I think, and I forget, I forget the guest who we were talking about this with, but the idea of like people are horrible at diagnosing their own problems. You know, that's why we have coaches. That's why we have therapists. That's why we have, you know, support networks and, and family and friends and all these people that help us diagnose our own problems because we're not good at doing it ourselves. So if you're just saying like, well, you know, I'm going to blurt out into the world or share a review. I think it was oh, when we were talking with G2 Crowd about this. I'm going to blurt out into the world of like, this thing is not great because of blank. It's like there, there's probably underlying reasons why you actually feel that way, but it's a symptom, not necessarily the disease. No question. And, and, you know, all those kind of platforms like G2 Crowd and, and things along those lines, you know, it, it, it puts a spotlight on customer attitudes in a way that, that didn't used to exist. But, you know, you have to realize that that's actually good news. I mean, any organization that, that doesn't want feedback is an organization that has some deep rooted problems. Yeah. And so let's get more into this idea of hug your haters and, the, and your amazing book. Like, what is the stakes if you don't do this? Yeah, it's actually huge. So we did a bunch of proprietary research for that book as well and found that if a customer, well, a couple of things. One, a third of all customer complaints are never answered, okay? Never. And I'm sure that's happened to you, right? Ian, Lauren, I'm sure in some point in your life, you complained to a company and heard nothing back, right? Absolutely. And did that make you feel better? 
No, <laughs> no right, <definitely laughs> it never does. Right. I mean, so, so because well, that was a trick question, <laughs> no, it's not a trick question because no, no response is a response, right? No response is a response that says we care so little about your dissatisfaction that we refuse to even acknowledge it. As my friend Chap Hyken says, a customer you ignore is a customer you should be prepared to lose. Completely. Can I tell one of my, my terrible customer service stories as an aside? Yeah, of course. Just make it quick, Lauren. We only got 16 minutes left. Okay, super quick. <laughs> um, it's just because we think about this so much at scale and on the, at least I do on the B2B side, this is such a, a bougie story. I ended up getting a very expensive massage right before the holidays and it was by far the worst massage I've ever gotten mm. that I wanted to get up and leave in the middle of it. And I booked a 90 minute massage before the holidays oh, that I was like, this is, this is terrible. I keep saying something. I keep providing feedback in a one-to-one setting and getting no changes. And I never complain. And I go, and when I go to pay, the woman asked me how it is. And I was like, to be perfectly honest, I don't like complaining. It was pretty terrible. And I wanted to get up and leave but I didn't feel comfortable. And she gave me like 5% off or 10% off on the massage. And it was a very expensive massage. And I sent a note to the company and said, hey, just this doesn't really sit right. And I feel like no one listened to me when I said anything. And I really don't like complaining, especially about something like this. But I felt like I needed to say something. No one ever responded. And it was, it was a $300 massage. And you're not going back, right? And now, Ever. You're, right. and now you're telling the story to other people. And it just, you know, it's like a, it's like a ball rolling. And it was so easy to fix that, right? Completely. And all they would have needed to do was send a note and respond and acknowledge that, you know what? I'm really sorry. That was a bad experience. That's not what we do. You it's know, not even next, about the money. It's, it's not, not it, it's almost never about the money. It's just about feeling heard. That's exactly what it is. And I think about this, I think about this as a marketer and I think about this as a business leader of, I still, and this was, you know, five months ago and I still think about, you know, that was really a giant waste of my time and incredibly unsatisfying. And our customers are feeling the same way when we have, the, when we provide those moments and we, we have those same, we have those same experiences. And I happen to be one of the few customers that said something. There are so many customers that don't say anything. I mean, the, the majority the, the data show that for every 100 dissatisfied customers, only five will complain. So that's, that's the one sort of corollary to the idea that, that anecdotes don't matter. If you say, hey, one person complained to me about having too many case studies, the research would suggest that 45X thought the same thing, right? That a number of people felt that there are too many case studies. That's what the data would show and that only one of those per people actually complained. And so that's why on one hand, yes, you don't want to you know, live your life based on stories from, from individual customers. On the other hand, every time somebody complains, this idea that that's an isolated belief or an isolated circumstance, that's probably not true either, which is what makes customer service interesting and, and challenging. And, and I think this goes to like levels of 
of customer vulnerability. Like there's no moment, and Lauren, you got to do a Lauren's Corner on that because that's great. There's no more vulnerable moment than when you're lying naked and on a bed or on a table and someone is has their hands on you for 90 minutes, right? So, but but conversely, it's like there's no more vulnerable that you feel when you just purchase like, you know, software or a- anything, any business but is thing, and you're like, my career is kind of in this person's hands on fulfilling this thing. And you feel like I want to make sure that I am heard because I'm a, you know, huge stakeholder in this whole thing. And if people don't care, then, you know, you just, you get that sense of like, I'm not only going to like not recommend this to people. I'm actually going to lash out and like post something negative about this. And again, that's only five out of the 100. Jay, do you think that do you think that there's a best practice or ways that companies can hug your haters and and deal with those uh, those potentially you know pretty volatile situations? Yeah, absolutely. And we break it all down in the book. But the the general philosophy is that you answer every customer in every channel every time. You do it as quickly as possible, and and you do it with empathy. But you do not get into um, a back and forth tit for tat because that is counterproductive and 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 never works. If you just genuinely tell people, hey, you're sorry, this didn't go particularly well, how can we fix it? And you stick to that system over and over, it's amazing how well it works. And it's one of the great sort of most gratifying things I've done in my career is in every book that I write, I encourage readers to, you know, usually I do it two or three times during the book at the end of a chapter, say, hey, you know, hope you're, hope you're liking it so far. Um, shoot me a note. Just let me know. Here's my email address, my actual email address. And I get emails every single day from people who are like, hey, I'm at chapter seven of Hug Your Haters and I've been putting this into practice. Man, it's already totally changed my business. You know, dealing with Yelp reviews differently or whatever. It's, it's cool. It definitely works. And, you know, when you, when you have a system for how to handle customers um, the same way that you'd have a system for how to A-B test a landing page, man, it makes your life a lot easier because it takes the pressure and the pain off of it because customer service, dealing with customers is a really, really hard thing because you say don't take it personally, but you still take it personally, right? And especially for hard, for, for small companies, you know, it, when somebody complains, it, it feels like somebody's telling you that your baby's ugly. Who should own that? You know, this podcast, obviously, we, we reach a lot of marketers, but I think that, you know, for a lot of companies, marketing communication are, are you know, tied hand in hand. How have you seen companies do it, uh, do it in a, a really good way? Yeah, we were just having a meeting about this with a client a couple of days ago. There's a, there's a few different, there is no right answer to that, a few different systems. So one, dedicated service team that handles both traditional and, and digital, right? So they handle social plus chat plus phone plus email. So dedicated service team is one. A uh, blended marketing and service team is two, and then digital service only. So they only do social stuff, and then somebody else does phone, email is probably three. So those are kind of the three key ways that this is typically staffed. Um, I don't necessarily have a an opinion on on which is best because some of it depends on the size of the company and and your leadership and your metrics and things like that. But while I am a marketer by background and a marketing consultant by trade, I don't know that that having marketing personnel also doing service is probably the best way to do it. Um, unless you're just starting out and everybody's got to wear multiple hats. I feel like if you're going to, if you're going to be in service, that means or it should mean that empathy comes first. And if you're going to be in marketing, um, especially B2B marketing, that means that 
MQLs come first. And MQLs and empathy are not always aligned. So that's not to suggest that somebody who's in marketing couldn't do you know, Twitter responses um, in, a, in a care capacity, you could, but it's probably ultimately going to be a circumstance where at some point you're going to say, which master am I serving here? Last question before the lightning round. What question do you never get asked that you, you have always wanted to be asked or, or just wish was brought up more? What question do I never get asked? Um, and I guess the question I never get asked is, is why do I keep doing this? Why do you keep doing this? I feel like, look, so, so I write books and I give speeches and I, uh, and I write a blog and I've got two, two podcasts, Social Pros, which is sponsored by Salesforce, which is all about enterprise social media. And then the Talk Trigger Show, which is uh, a weekly video show and podcast, which is one case study a week. Each episode is only six minutes. One case study a week about a company killing it with, uh, with word of mouth. It's really fun. Which, by the way, are, is fantastic. Great work. Love to have a fellow, uh, fellow podcaster out there putting out great stuff. We'll, we'll link up all the stuff in the show notes. I appreciate that. So, I, you know, I spend a lot of time and I create a lot of stuff, right? But, but the reason I do all of it is because I genuinely want people's businesses to improve, right? Like my friend Rory Vaden says this thing that I love and I repeat it as often as I can, that a speech is nothing but an advertisement for what's possible. And I feel like the same is true of a strategy or a book or a blog post or a podcast episode. It's just an advertisement for what's possible. What I get excited about is engaging with somebody somewhere, somehow on stage, on page, and then at some point in the future, they say, hey, you know what? I'm actually making more money or saving money or both because of what you taught me. To me, that's the, the greatest gift of all. That's what keeps me doing it, right? Is, is knowing that you know, every once in a while, uh, this is actually having an impact on people. I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who's going to go write a, you know, like a self-help book. Like, you know, people say, why don't you write a book that tell, talks to people about how to make their individual lives better? I'm like, because I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> like, I'm a, like, my life's a mess. Like, what do you want? You're not going to learn anything from me. Uh, but I can tell you how to make your business better. And I really like it. You know, I told you at one point in the show here that I thought I was going to go be a teacher at a university. My parents are both teachers. And I always wanted to do that. And what I realized a couple of years ago is that I'm a teacher now. It's just that I've got yeah. a bunch of different classrooms, right? And so when I feel like I don't have anything left to teach, I'll stop doing it. I love it. And I love that point about the speaking because what's so interesting now with technology is that you can give those talks. And obviously books have always been like this um, since they've been being printed and shared around the world. But now with technology, you can spread that to, you know, like this podcast, we're in whatever, 129 countries. That's what's just so exciting about the possibility for the future. Any other final thoughts for lightning round? No, I'm ready. I'm ready for lightning. All right, let's do this. Thanks to our friends at Pardot, because marketing automation is fast and easy with Pardot, just like the lightning round questions. Fast and easy. Let's get into it. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? The app that is the most fun. 
Um, I really, really like, um, you know what's, okay. So there's a, this is too much backstory, but it's not really lightning. I'm going to say the, the Formula One app. So there was a Netflix series recently, a documentary on Formula One and how it works. I didn't really know much at all about Formula One racing. I watched that Netflix series, about 10 shows, super loved it, got hooked, got totally sucked into it. Uh, and so now I'm like instantaneously a Formula One fan. So I've been checking on Formula One news and what's going on in that series. And it's like, it's like discovering a new sport, which is kind of cool because I'm a big sports fan. That is really cool. That's a great one. Favorite one day getaway in Indiana. One day getaway in Indiana. Well, my son's a, a hockey player. Um, he's graduated from high school here in a month. And so I spent the last 10 years driving around to a lot of places in Indiana that may or may not be considered a great one day getaway. Uh, if you want a, a list of uh, ice rinks um, in Indiana and, and to uh, <laughs> rank, and, rank and rate them uh, by, uh, by snacks, by coffee, I could do all of that for sure. But I, I would say uh, in Indiana in general, I really, you know, the, the museum collection sort of in downtown Indianapolis is amazing. Uh, the Newfields Art Museum, the Otto York History Museum, there's just a lot of really great culture stuff in downtown Indianapolis, and it's all walking distance to one another, which is really convenient. Other than, other than your books, what is your favorite book you've read recently? Favorite book I have read recently? It's not, it, it was probably a year ago now, but I love it, love it, love it. And it's Never Lose a Customer Again by my buddy, Joy Coleman. Um, one of the better books on customer service, uh, I think, ever written. It's terrific. Do you have a uh, campaign that you've seen recently that you were super jealous of? A marketing campaign I've seen recently that I was super jealous of? You know what I loved yesterday is when I discovered this is when it was launched, the you guys may have seen it. It went around a little bit yesterday. The Pete uh, Buttigieg, the presidential candidate who's actually from South Bend, Indiana, he officially announced his candidacy for for president, and simultaneously rolled out this super nuanced, really smart, incredibly polished and and outstanding visual design guidelines, like a brand book um, for his campaign. And it's it's way beyond what most actual companies have, uh, and and he's wow. just guy from South Bend presidential candidate on the first day of his candidacy rolls out this brand guidelines book, which was super good. So it's not really a marketing campaign, but it is in some ways from a positioning standpoint. And I was like, holy cow, this is no joke. That sounds amazing. I need to go look this up. Also, I didn't know how to pronounce his last name until you just said it. Yes, we learned it in Indiana. It's, it's Buddha, like the Buddha and judge like a judge. Good to know. I'm still going to mispronounce it, but I'm going to remember that. Uh, what, uh, what thing are you most excited about for the future of marketing? I think what I'm the most excited about is, I know, look, I want to make sure this isn't to a hammer. Everything looks like a nail, but I feel like from the work that we do, um, with a lot of companies and, and talking on great shows like this, I feel like everything is now pointing to CX, right? That, that people have kind of awoken to this idea that that CX is marketing and marketing is CX. And then if you get the customer experience right, then everything else kind of falls in line. And as somebody who does a lot of CX consulting and, and the fact that talk triggers and word of mouth strategy is essentially just a, a customer experience variant, that that all is very exciting to me, right? Like, because ultimately big data, AI, machine learning, unless it's in service of something, like what's the point of that, right? It's not about big data, it's about big understanding. 
And that understanding has to be put into practice to improve the customer experience. Otherwise, why are we doing this at all? So the fact that that customer experience is now sort of in, in the driver's seat, if you will, um, in a lot of companies, to me, that is really exciting. And it's about friggin' time. All right, that's it for the lightning round. You can find Jay at Jaybear, J-A-Y-B-A-E-R, and Convincing Convert at Convince. Great uh, Twitter handle there. Any other stuff for our listeners, Jay? I mean, this has just been absolutely awesome. We got to have you back um, to talk more content marketing strategy stuff because uh, we could uh, we could quite literally do this all day with you. You're a smooth customer. Thanks. Uh, yeah, if you go to talktriggers.com, that's where the book is based. Uh, there's all kinds of free stuff there, right? So research reports, videos, infographic on alpacas versus llamas, uh, a bunch of other stuff. There's a, there's a presentation that you can download if you want to talk about uh, word of mouth in your company. There's a book group uh, discussion guide, like all kinds of free stuff. So uh, go to talktriggers.com, check that out too. Yeah. And buy it for your whole marketing team. If you're uh, go all get on the same page and uh, talk about talk triggers, buying books in or books in bulk is uh, makes, makes the authors happy. That's for sure. So uh, go get Jay's book. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Any other stuff to plug, uh, just let us know and we'll, uh, we'll toss it in the newsletter marketing on the marketingtrends.com newsletter. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.